Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. At the end of the period we call the Reformation, in the middle of the 17th century, some 120 Reformation reformer scholars assembled in Westminster, England, there to put together the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the Catechism's famous first question and answer really gets to the core of what the Reformation was all about. The question is this. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The glory of God and enjoyment of him. These inseparable twin truths were guiding lights for the Reformation. The reformers held that through all the doctrines they fought for and upheld, God was glorified and therefore the saints were given comfort and joy. Now there was an implicit criticism there of the pre-Reformation theology that went all the way back to our old friend Augustine. Because for all the great things that Augustine had done, Augustine had got justification quite wrong. As he saw it, it was Romans 5 verse 5 that gave the cleanest explanation of justification, he thought. There, the Apostle Paul writes that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given us. And so for Augustine, God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and that slowly transforms us. And so as God's love is infused into us, we become more and more just We act more and more justly. We are increasingly justified, was the argument. Now, the question, of course, that people were forced then to ask was, well, have I been transformed by this process to be just enough to merit heaven? And the honest answer had to be, I don't know, almost certainly not. If I can only enter heaven because I myself have attained some level of righteousness in myself, then I can only be as confident of heaven as I am confident in my own righteousness and sinlessness. In fact, to be confident of heaven under that theology 
must be a great sin of presumption. And it was precisely one of the charges laid at the trial of Joan of Arc in 1431. And there the judges proclaimed, this woman sins when she says she is certain of being received into paradise. For on this earthly journey, said the judges, no pilgrim knows if he is worthy of glory or of punishment. Quite different to the theology of the apostle John who wrote in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Quite differently, this theology bred fear, not joy. The need to have personal merit before God left people terrified of the prospect of judgment. And you can still sense that when you look at a medieval fresco of the Last Judgment. You can, you can hear it in the words of the Dies Irae that would be chanted in every Catholic Mass for the Dead. Here are the words. Day of wrath, day that will dissolve the world into burning coals. What am I the wretch to say? What patron can I look to? When scarcely the just be secure, king of tremendous majesty, do not lose me on that day. My prayers are not worthy, but do thou, good God, deal kindly, lest I burn in perennial fire. This was exactly why the young Martin Luther shook with fear at the thought of death. It's why he said he hated God rather than enjoying him. Young Luther could not rejoice. And then he discovered 500 years ago in Romans 1, chapter 17, that sinners are freely declared righteous in Christ. And then with that discovery, everything changed for him. No longer was his confidence for the day of Christ's return, no longer was his confidence placed in himself and his performance. Now it was placed in Christ and his sufficient righteousness. And so for Luther, the horrifying doomsday became what he called the happy last day the day of Jesus, his friend. And the consolation that that brought to all who shared Reformation theology, it was captured in the striking wording of the Heidelberg Catechism's 52nd question and answer. Here it is. The question is, what comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. What comfort is that to you? And the answer, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly wait as judge from heaven, the very one who submitted himself to the judgment of God for me. 
and who has removed all the curse from me. That's the one I expect from heaven. Comfort in Christ for the struggling believer, that was the effect of the theology of the Reformation. Or listen to the vim with which another reformer, um, an earlier reformer, William Tyndale, put it. He said, Evangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word, and it signifies good, merry, glad, joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad, make him sing, dance, leap for joy. That was Tyndale's discovery, that he, a failing sinner, was loved by God who had adopted him in Christ and who had clothed him with all the righteousness of his perfect son, it gave Tyndale a dazzling happiness. And that was the effect of Reformation theology. Through justification by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, God was glorified as utterly merciful and good, as supremely holy and compassionate. And therefore, people could find their comfort and their delight in God. Through union with Christ, believers could now address the Almighty as their Abba knowing that they have a firm standing before God in Christ, knowing confidently he was able to save and keep to the uttermost. Or without a priestly hierarchy, something else that was brought down the Reformation, without that priestly hierarchy, believers could now call each other brother and sister, together, living every part of life for the kind father they'd been brought to enjoy. And through these truths, lives can still blossom under the joy-giving light of God's glory. Now, the Reformation really started in October 1517 with a skirmish concerning the idea of purgatory. Now, purgatory was the Roman Catholic solution to the problem that nobody would have died righteous enough in themselves to be ready for heaven. And so purgatory was said to be the place where Christian souls would go after death to have all their sins slowly purged from them to have that process of becoming just or righteous very slowly completed. But to the reformers, purgatory quickly came to symbolize all that was wrong with the Roman Catholic view of salvation. John Calvin wrote this. He said, purgatory is a deadly fiction of Satan, which nullifies the cross of Christ, inflicts unbearable contempt upon God's mercy, and overturns and destroys our faith. For, said Calvin, what does this purgatory of theirs mean but that 
satisfaction for sin is paid for by the souls of the dead themselves. But if it is perfectly clear that the blood of Christ is the sole satisfaction for sin, the sole expiation, the sole purgation, then what remains to say but that purgatory is a dreadful blasphemy against Christ? His logic was simple. Purgatory strips Christ of his glory as a merciful and fully sufficient saviour. And it also destroys any joy and comfort and confidence for us. No joy for us, no glory for Christ. It went right against the grain of Reformation thought, which cared so deeply for those twin prizes. And what the Reformation thinkers saw, especially through the message of justification by faith alone, they saw the revelation of an exuberantly happy God, a God who glories in sharing his happiness, not stingy or utilitarian, but a God who glories in being gracious. And that is why dependent faith, faith that hangs just on him, is what glorifies God, according to Romans 4 verse 20. To steal from his glory by claiming any credit for ourselves is to rob ourselves of joy in so marvelous a God. The glory of God and the resulting joy of the saints was the concern of the reformers. And this got so into Protestant blood that the very Lutheran composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, when he was satisfied with his compositions, he would write at the bottom of them, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. For through his music, he wanted to sound out to the world the beauty and the glory of God, which is pleasing to God and people. The glory of God, Bach believed, gratuitously rings out throughout all creation bringing pleasure wherever it's appreciated. And that is worth living for and promoting. In fact, wrote Calvin, that is the secret of happiness and the secret of life. For, said Calvin, it is necessary for us to go outside of ourselves to find happiness. The chief good of man, he said, is nothing less than union with God. Against everything we're told today, happiness is not found by looking in ourselves, by appreciating our own beauty or convincing ourselves that we are beautiful. Deep lasting, satisfying happiness is found outside ourselves in the all-glorious God. All of which is really just another way of saying, what is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy.